All right, everybody. Uh, welcome to 24 Slayton. I'm here with Norel. How's it going, man? I'm good. Yeah, long time no see. Um, yeah, I think it was Howard's, uh, last time was Howard's uh, memorial. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. So what you been up to? You know, I, um, let's see, what's been going on lately? I started this new gold company, so that's really kind of really been most of what it is. Um, you know, dealing with uh, and understanding how the economic factors of the political situation that this country is in, in terms of the diversity of how people are and and what people believe in. Yeah. And so it's kind of given me a different perspective of looking at it. Because I deal with mainly uh, Republicans now yeah. and their point of view and how they see it versus a, a Democratic point of view of how I'm pretty much seeing the world. So I get to hear both sides of it. So it's actually opened me up to understanding. A little bit of the diversity. I mean, I'm surprised by how crazy the people in the country is, especially the people that follow Trump. I've never seen or heard Americans be so divisive in their hatred outside of the racist stuff. Yeah. So sure. I think that's um, what's been going on lately. And where'd you grow up? Well, Melroy and I, my older brother and I, we were both born in Spokane, Washington on an Air Force base. And then, you know, my parents got married um, in England um, in 1957. So where I think 30 states at that point, it was still against the law for them to be married. And so when they got married in Manchester, England, my father brought my mother here to L.A. before he got transferred to Texas. And that was the first place that they went to as a couple. And my mother could stay with my dad. I think she was there for like a week. Mm -hmm. And she had to leave because it was illegal for them to be living in the same house in Texas yeah. at the time. So she came back and lived with my grandmother in Watts. And then they then got transferred. My father got transferred to Spokane, Washington in 58. Melroy was born in 59. I was born in 60. And then my dad got transferred to Montana. And that's where Arlen was born. And he was born at Air Force Base in Montana. And then my father was forced out of the military for being married to uh, a white woman. Mm. And then that's when we came back here and and moved to um, 41st and Hoover, right over there. And then my brother Lawrence was born at White Memorial. Nice. So... Um, but it was an interesting time. I mean, I guess when we were kids, I mean, that's when um, I think the family was really connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I know I was, as a kid, um, I was always at your dad's house going up there a lot. I remember going up there a lot and Uncle Bill's house and being around all of them and Aunt Emma and Aunt B going to Aunt B's house. And I don't know if you remember ever going to Aunt B's house. Yeah, we used to go, I used to go there and I used to go to Bill's house a lot. Yeah. Bill's, a lot of... And, and, and B used to have the train thing in the backyard. Yeah. She had the train set. And Sundays, used to have dinner there, and they used to cook chitlins. Yes. I'll never forget that. I, I, that smell will never... <laughs> just that whole that whole <clears throat> dynamic and how she was. and um, She was just always a really good, loving person. Yes. She wasn't really mean. Um, neither was Aunt Emma. Aunt Emma or Uncle Luke was another one. Uncle Luke going to his house over there off of... Um, like 28th in Vermont, mm -hmm. going to his house a lot. Yeah. You know, um, 
and uh, and being around Joyce, his daughter. Okay. I don't know if you remember Joyce. I remember Joyce. Yeah, she's the one that had the car accident, lost her eye. Um, okay, I think Debbie's I remember. Debbie's mother. Yeah, I think I remember. I had to see her. Deb, but... Debbie's mother. But she's also, you know, part of that whole Slayton line that all of us go through. So lived there until, I think, 71. And then we went to England. And then we were there for about a year. And then we came back, and my dad was gone. And I think that's when our family disconnect happened. And at that point, it was just, you know, streets for me. So how was, how was it growing up in East L.A.? I mean, not East L.A., in L.A.? <clears throat> like back then, because, I mean, I grew up in East L.A., which was totally different. I mean, you know, I think part of it, I think once we talked a little bit about that prior to this, um, you know, the whole, the dynamic of being biracial in a, in a, a country where race is so prevalent, mm-hmm. right? And then being part of... Um, part of a race that's not as widely cheered upon. Yeah. Right. In terms of being black and not really looking that part, but having had a whole family of, of growing up with, you know, grandmother and all of that grandfather and stuff wanting to be identified as, you know, (laughs) always wanting to have that, that identification but you don't really get it, you know, and then having an English part of my family and not really identifying there either, you know, makes it a, a little difficult. And uh, I would say it probably not the easiest part, I think, because you not having been fully one thing, I'm not sure how one feels about it. I think it's just probably second nature to just be who you are. Yeah. Right. But when you have this other dynamic happen i would suppose it might be the same thing as being raised in a house with a with a jewish mother and a and a catholic father or, or whatever you know it's like not a hundred percent of one or the other and then trying to identify um when you were when you were like growing up because whatever i mean how old were you when you went back came back from england and i was 12 so 12 so how did how did because for me growing up i grew up in like mostly hispanic but i was half hispanic half black and right. every, a lot of people knew my dad but it was just kind of, it was a little different, but not too bad. We weren't, it wasn't too racist and not, not racist, like that kind of racist in um, East LA. But in, when I would go to visit everybody else out there, when I go out, we'd go, you know, in, in West LA and Watts and whatever we went to out there, it was different. Like they treated me different because like, I'm not the same. I'm different. Like I didn't look like everybody else. And I tr- I got tra- I got treated a little bit different. The family was different. They kind of but even some of the kids growing up, some of our family, they treated me a little different. And then plus my brother went, which was my older brother, and he's all Mexican. So but he he actually went to school in Watts when he was younger. When my mom moved over there, so my mom lived in Watts, and he was like the only Mexican in that. Like you see a school picture, and hey, there's Anthony. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was different. But when I went, I felt I felt I was treated a little different because I was, I guess, light-skinned, if you want to call it, but really light-skinned. So, <laughs> you know, but there was just, like, you know, even being light-skinned growing up, I was treated different, like not treated one way or the other way. Uh, you know, I think when you talk about the dynamic of our family, right, my experience 
I'd say this is what I call pre pre father leaving yeah. and post father leaving, right? So the dynamic when my dad was around when I was a kid was I never felt isolated. I always felt I was part of because you know because he was there and we were always around. And then when he left, there was an isolation part where we weren't always around. We weren't part of it. So when I would sometimes go to family things. I always felt like a little bit of an outsider because I hadn't really been around that much. Yeah. Know? And it's still the same way today. You know, when they have family stuff and we go to it, I'm not as close with everybody as some of the other ones would be, right? You know, in that that regards. But I think, um, you know, when you live in a, a predominantly black neighborhood and your mother's English, yeah. you know, and um, you're going to have to deal with a lot of stuff that, you know, is not um, conducive for a normal kid's childhood, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, um, from not only the, the the racial part of it, then there's the economic stuff that you feel part, that you have to go through and feeling the shame and the embarrassment of being poor and on welfare. Yeah. And then, you know, then trying to feel like I'm just like you, yeah. but I just happen to be a lot lighter than you. Yeah. Right. So what see me as an equal. And then, you know, we also were going to school in Hollywood. So that made it even more difficult because it's like, I want you to see me as being black, yeah. but I'm going to school in Hollywood. And I'm kind of now understanding that, I kind of don't want you to see me as being black. I kind of want you to see me as being white. And yeah. So I'm like caught in between, but I'm dressing like a gang member, you know, khakis and suspenders and duck bills and bomber jacket, you know, hanging bandana and trying to be an associate, right? And then hanging out with kids who live in the Hollywood Hills and being friends with them. And they're wearing OP shorts and stuff. It was just this whole, you know, it's like, I mean, it's it's like um, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz when she's in that house and it's spinning. Yeah. That's what it was happening. It's like that whole junior high, middle high school years were just a spin for me, right? And um, yeah, it was like you know, and then you throw in you know the the whole dynamic of father leaving you, so you don't you know you're kind of you're mad at your mother feeling it's her fault, right? And then. Uh, you don't want to blame your father because you're hoping he would come back and then you don't know where he is and then there's no money. You know, and the only thing that seemed to relieve all of that stuff was just get into drugs. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do drugs and do crime. How was it, like, how were the kids in Hollywood treating you? You know, that wasn't always as easy either, you yeah. know what I mean? Because, you know, we were talking the mid, we're talking the 70s in America where, you know, race was just such a, a prevalent upheaval, yeah. right? And so, it black hadn't really become cool yet, yeah. <laughs> like it is today, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, way if, if, it, if it had been cool like it is today back then, <laughs> I would have been like more of a celebrity. Yeah, right? I would have got a little bit more shine for sure. Yeah, you know, but um, it it hadn't really hit, you know, and then then there was the whole thing with inside the black community about being light skinned. Yes, right. So that yeah. hadn't really become cool yet no. either, right? And so you weren't. Um, 
in some cases, you know, you weren't black enough. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't white enough. You're kind of caught in between. And, you know, it's the dynamic of why do you sound white? You know, well, yes. my mom's English. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you know, yo, y'all, them's not being spoken in my home. So I'm, I'm only emulating what's, what's going on in my house. And, you know, and then, you know, you're going to school and, and you're surrounded by, um, somewhat celebrity kids right so i'm going to school there uh, but i'm taking the bus public bus yeah not even school bus i'm literally taking in those days rtd you know and um yeah it was you know you go there and you hang out all day there and you look at kids you become friends with the kids who live in the hollywood hills and then you leave and you go back into the south central and you know, you're not feeling you're not feeling comfortable in either in any of the world. Yeah. Right now, you're just uncomfortable in life, and there's a lot of anger and you know and uh, and confusion. You know, I think today some kids really kind of have it a little bit lucky because there's child psychologists and that that wasn't available back in that day. You know. Yeah. Um, just deal with it. You deal with it. Yeah. And how do you deal with it? You know, you start learning how to smoke pot at twelve. You know. And uh, and you start emulating certain people in the neighborhood who seem to have, like, they seem to be smarter or they got something kind of going on, so you're kind of looking at them a little bit. Right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how it went, you know, for a while until my mom was able, it took her, th after we came back from England, it took her three years of scraping and scraping to get enough money to be able to move to Hollywood. And full-time and that's what happened you know but periodically i would go down to the gym i would see bill yeah i'd go down there i'd go fight a little bit in the gym um you know every once in a while we'd see some people from the family but i think there was a probably a five-year period where i didn't really see been see too many people in the from the family side of it yeah. we're really definitely isolated in a lot of ways i think when my mom moved to watts that's when she because she knew your mom pretty good Mm -hmm. And they talked. I think when she moved to Watts, they used to talk more. And then then I guess she moved away. They didn't really talk as much. And then your mom moved back to England, right? Then my mom, at some point, at one point, yeah, later on, my mom went back to England. Yeah, when no. we were a little bit older and stuff. But she went back twice trying to live there. And it was, she left there for a reason. You know, mm -hmm. she left there for a reason. And um, But she tried a couple of times. Uh, I think she was there once when Melory was there and she had to leave because Melory created such havoc. But, you know, <laughs> that's another story and another yeah. another chapter. <laughs> Melroy. Yeah, from another one. Yeah, I gotta know. bring him here. Yeah. I talk to him every once in a while. So you talked about like drugs and like turning to drugs and all this other stuff. Like how long did that last or how did that go or, you know, what happened there? Well, I mean I think that, you know, like for for a lot of people I think it's um I think when you, what they, well, they call it today, they call it child trauma, right? That's what they call it today, child trauma. When you go through, you know, some adversity in, in your childhood, they call it child trauma, right? So I think when you've gone through some adversity or um, trauma yeah. as a child and it's untreated, you're trying to find a way to create um, some sort of um, pain relief. And unfortunately, there isn't a pharmacy on the corner with a, with someone that's able to prescribe something in a normal fashion. So, you know, the simplest thing, especially in the 70s, was just 
start with pot and then alcohol and you know and then from there let it go to open the door to run as crazy as you could so i think some of it was to So you're socially, you're socially disconnected because you don't feel like you're part of. Yeah. Right. You are shameful for being poor. You have an abandonment issue because your father's left, right? And so, um, and now you're looking up to older guys in the neighborhood to try to help fill that void of that guy that's left you. So now you're, you know, when I'm 12, the guys I'm hanging out with are 15, 16. So whatever they're doing, I'm following their lead from sports to, you know, drinking and, and, and doing drugs to, to committing crimes, you know. And uh, it's it's funny, like, as and I tell people this, uh, you talk, they talk about the typical somewhat black experience in America, right, from the inner city perspective. A lot of it is, uh, you know, household without a father, single mother, on welfare, or at least some sort of financial struggle, trying to raise these kids without really any help, mm-hmm. right? And then those kids end up getting into the street and experiencing all of that stuff. So as much as I never seem to fit into being, quote unquote, seen as being black, my experience has been definitely of, of from, from my... Um, knowledge of having talking to a bunch of guys that I know that my my experience was very much a typical black experience in America. You know, there was no differentiation about my color. Yeah. You know, from my experience. So um that part I can say I've I truly do know what it's like to be black <laughs> black in America from that perspective for sure. So, you know, the drugs and alcohol just seem to take off the pain. You know, just to f- you forget forget how bad it is you forget that you live in a one-bedroom apartment with with five people yeah right you forget that you know there's not always enough food you forget about all of that stuff you know you just it allows you at least a bit of a relief you know some pretending of being happy and then yeah that's it that's different like i me, i when i grew up i kind of you know grew up same thing with all the people and like i seen a lot of my friends doing drugs and I just never, actually, actually, my brother did a lot of, my brother, my older brother, yeah. he did a lot of stuff, so I kind of seen him, and I'm like, it doesn't really seem fun to me, you know, and that doesn't seem the road to go on, and I think my dad, because my dad was, well, they weren't together, but like I seen him on the weekends, <clears throat> he got me into riding dirt bikes or bicycles or whatever it was, and I think that was my kind of release, and I think that's probably my drug of choice, you know, um, riding dirt bikes and motorcycles, and so that's, that's I think that kept me off of doing like stuff like that. Well, I think that, I think um, the thing that you said, which is uh, the most important part, I think for any child is um, especially for a boy is his father's involvement in his life. Yeah. Right. It's very seldom that you see like these athletes are when they talk about a lot of times they talk about how their father was involved or you know and helped them out and kept them off the streets and yeah. kept them involved and I think that. Uh, the lack of a father figure opens the door for almost anything to come walking in to give you some sort of similarity of a, what a man is supposed to be, yeah. right? And um, you, you get lost in, in, in the disbelief or the fantasy of what 
someone's being telling you that is the truth of how a man is supposed to be. And most of it's just such a fantasy that you end up living till you kind of wake up one day and find out a lot of that wasn't true. Yeah. Then you see what your mom's going through and how she's like trying to, it's kind of hard to see that, I think, for you. I think, um, I think a lot of it is, um, I think when you're in a survival mode, just seeing what's outside the day tomorrow isn't even irrelevant to you. It's it's like a day-to-day thing. You're going from moment to moment to try to survive for today. And unfortunately, I think what happens, um, speaking for myself, I think what happens when survival is the main form of education, it, it, um, it prevents you from believing that there's something bigger and better for you out there. You know, you just survive and you shoot from the hip every day the best way you can, you know. Um, and then that's what leads you into different things. Yeah. Right. I think that's how, I think if you sat and probably talked to most people that, that are incarcerated, that come from an impoverished background and a lack of resources, I think they would talk about how survival was what it is that they pretty much were doing and weren't thinking about the consequences for what will get them locked up because they're just trying to survive. Yeah. And And then the people that they're hanging around with are doing the same thing. So they kind of, you know, that's you kind of feel that's the way to do it. I mean, you know, um, and, you know, for for those that are fortunate enough to awaken at an early age in that survival mode and they they find that survival for them is um, school, Right. In some cases, it's a job and they just work really hard. Um, they're the fortunate few, the fortunate ones. But I think that probability, the percentile of how many never make it out of the survival mode is probably much smaller. You know, than those that were raised in an affluent area it doesn't matter about the color. I think if you're raised with a little bit of financial resources and survival not being your daily function in life. I think you have a better shot at having a fairly good life, right? Yeah. I think. I mean, I don't know because I've not been there, but yeah, you know, I can only see from the perspective as as a father with a child now, and they're seeing how her life has been for her. I don't think she's had the same struggles. Yeah. Right? You know. Yeah, like kind of the same with my my son. He's hasn't really struggled too much. But you know the interesting, you know the interesting thing that I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine back when my daughter was younger, and I was saying like, you know, my daughter doesn't realize how hard it is. She's so lucky, right? Yeah. And my friend said to me, you know, everyone's childhood is a struggle, and their struggle is their struggle. It it can't be a on par for par kind of struggle, yeah. right? Because then they said so. What, was you, what do you think your mom's childhood was like? And I was like, oh, wait a minute. My mom was born in 1934 in Manchester, England. So by the time she was eight, her community was being bombed by the Nazis. So she lived from probably 41 to like 44, 45 in a city that was being bombed and where she had to go into a bomb shelter. And then I think about like what the people are going through in the Ukraine, right? Yeah. And you think about those little kids, their struggle can never be compared. And I couldn't compare my struggle as a biracial kid in South Central to having been raised in a place where rations 
in shelters for four or five days underneath the ground while you come out and maybe the little girl that you were friends with who wasn't lucky enough to get out of the bombing part of it, she's gone. Yeah. You know, half your neighborhood is destroyed because of it being bombed. Okay, how bad is it to walk to the store trying to buy milk and bread and have to fight some guy to keep the money in your pocket? Yeah. I probably would take that a little bit more than waking up in the morning and finding out like half my neighborhood's been bombed out. So, yeah. you know, everyone's struggle is a little different. And, you know, you you can compare your son to say, oh, his struggle isn't that bad, but he's got his own stuff that he's got to deal yeah. with, right? Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah, and my kid's got the same stuff, right? You know, she grew up in a more affluent sort of neighborhood where a lot of her friends' parents were married. Yeah. But she's the isolated one who's got the divorced parents, right? And and that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, everyone's struggle is different. You know? Yeah, it's true. You can't. I don't think we can compare pain, no. right? No, <laughs> that's. Yeah. I think that's that's the thing that everyone tries to do. I mean, you like back at your kid, and you go, "Oh, back my kid's my, my kid's so lucky. He got a car when he was 16. I didn't get a car till I was 24, or whatever it is." How to buy myself, you look at it, right? Yeah, but then that kid's struggle is so much different because time is so much different, right? right? I mean, you look at it today. It's like their world existence is through a little phone, mm-hmm. right? Our world existence was the world. Right, their world has shrunk to a certain degree. It's it's they they have the ability to touch the world in a certain way. Yeah. Right. But truly, they touch the world through a small little phone, where we had to touch the world through through actually touching the world. So it's a it's a little different, you know, in terms of their perspective and how they see the world. You know. That's good. That's a good point. I like that one. Yeah. So maybe my son will listen to that one. Oh, he's here. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, you know, but I like I said, I think all, everyone's is different. Yeah. You know, everyone's childhood is so different, and the and the perspective and the pain they go through, it's it's like everything else, right? You know, um, I always use the analogy that life is a bus ride. You never know who's going to sit next to you for how long they'll be there. The scenery always changes, and the road goes up and down, and then one day it comes to a stop. It's pretty much how, you know, kind of look at it today. Yeah, that's uh, true. So, George bus ride's a little different. <laughs> yeah, his, his ride is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. he's got hip-hop music in the background or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, my struggles are like, I had to deal, well, I, it was like a transitioning world from like being the real to the phone world because it, the cell phone was just getting popular. Yeah. And then, like, I guess, like, I also had to deal with um, a lot of, like, a, a big chunk of my friends are, like, gay and trans, which is stuff you'd probably have never even thought of. And, like, like all of that is becoming a lot more public. And, like, people are just a lot, uh, they're, they have the ability to be themselves more. No, true. I mean, yeah, and that's that's the, one of the things that I, I, like, my daughter, you know, she grew up with friends who had, you know, parents, two parents of the same sex. And so for her, you know, things don't, don't matter. That stuff is not as prevalent as a life experience as ours was, right? Yeah. I, I grew up in a, in a, you know, in a predominantly black neighborhood where it wasn't, 
that wasn't going to be free free freedom and free speech and, yeah. and free whatever was not what was willing to be accepted, right? And so I, my daughter tells me all the time I'm a dinosaur, yeah. right? And uh, and my girlfriend will tell me that I'm, I'm a little homophobic or whatever. And it's like, you know, but you learn to try to adapt to the best of your ability, right? It's not... It's not always going to be perfect, but yeah. When we when we grew up, it was different. There wasn't the same. Um, you didn't have. You knew there was maybe a few gay kids in school, and you know you knew who they were. But it was that was it. They were kind of, and that was it. Nowadays, it's there's a lot. Everybody's around, and you don't treat them any different. And I don't treat them any different. And you know that's it's just that it's it's kind of like becoming. What I say, Jordan. Take a drink. It's kind of like because we're. We always see it, so it's not, we're not homophobic, it's just, it's, for us, it's not, we have to learn to deal with it, like us and our generation, because <clears throat> growing up to it, it's different. I, I think, I think the, the, the difficult part <clears throat> for me has, has been like, having grown in, in an era of where the misperception of what the man is supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Especially when you come from um, a black perspective in America, right? And so um, I still have difficulty at times watching a show where two guys will kiss. Yeah. You know, I, I it's not something that I'm as free and easily willing to to deal with, and, and it's not because I dislike. Yeah. That it's just that it's still something that's not as openly. I would say from inside acceptable, but I'm tolerant enough to allow people to be themselves. I don't yeah. know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's kind of weird though, you know, like, it's kind of weird. Most guys are okay with two girls kissing. Most guys, most no, I think yeah. that, of course. Yeah. I think but then yeah. when they say two guys kissing, it's like, uh, I mean, it's, it's still like a double standard, but it's, that's, well, that's because of the show, that's because of the machoism that we've been false, yeah. that we've falsely been given it the way we're supposed to be. Yeah, that's why right. I'm like kind of like uh, people are gonna do what they're gonna do. You know, they do what I say, George. They do what they do, and I'm gonna be me. So you do you, and I'll be me. And that's that's pretty much how it is. I'm not gonna be mean. To, I'm not gonna be mean to you, belittle you, or anything else. It's just you do what you do, and I'm just gonna be me, and that's it. So it's easier. I think it's easier said than than to practice all the time. Well, I right? have to deal with being, I have to deal being with... politically correct is not the easiest thing <laughs> when you're at a certain age, right? Yeah. You get to a certain age based off of where you come from. I think, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, it's probably a lot easier to be adaptable to being as politically correct because it's, it's just part of the nature of their lives. Yeah. And I think people in their 60s and 70s mm -hmm. We're still kind of, even though we may have come from a little bit of the freedom that we had in the 60s and 70s, it's still a little bit difficult to always accept things for what they are, right? Yeah, because yeah, my dad and my dad, my mom, and some people older, like, they're, well, they're filters. Sure your dad. Their filters, gone. <laughs> but I, like, the thing is, I deal, with, I deal with so much because of my son and all of his, like, some of his friends and just people, other people that I see, like, it's, it's there already, you know, it's just... I, I see how he does it and how he deals with it, you know, and I just have to, like, you know, I see them, you know. And it's his friends that we, I seen them when they were in high school. I seen some of them in junior high. And now they're just not that same person. They're somebody different. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they turn the corner, so. 
I mean, you know, like I said, it's uh, the world is not what it was, yeah. but it's always going to be the world. And it's going to change and, and change. And you learn to live in it and okay. learn to accept part of it, right? Um, I think for me, part of it has always been, though, I think the, the willingness to evolve as a human being, you know, and I think once I got sober, um, that's 24 years now, I think I've been willing to be a different person a lot of times, but I've been stubborn as hell mm -hmm. to change. <laughs> um, and then recently, having given up cigars, and that's allowed for a different change to come into my life even further, right? I think, um, you know, with the with the, the thought that we're only here once, obviously there are people who have a different perspective of that, but in this form that I am today, that um, I've been trying to change consistently mm -hmm. and be a better person as much as I can. And um, doesn't mean that the demons from your past don't, they go 100% away. Um, and the, the childhood trauma, as much as you work on it, or at least in my perspective of how I've worked on it, and trying to make make it as right as I possibly can requires still a lot of work. Still requires a lot of work. Yeah. You know, still requires a lot of work. That's um, cool. I mean, I understand. So, yeah. Yeah. We're all we're all we're all still working. You know, we still work and work, and try to make it through life and not get canceled and. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and being willing to adapt. I think yeah. a lot of it has to be willing to adapt. I mean, I feel fortunate enough that um, I hadn't pigeonholed myself into one way of life, you know. And so that's allowed me to to accept some stuff and move towards some things. Yeah. You know, um, and today it's, I think, probably the best it's ever been. I mean, I think right now, today is probably... Like at that point in my life where I'm like at the happiest. Yeah. Much more content today than I've ever been. Yeah, that's good. That's you know? good to hear. Yeah. But you went through, you've been through a lot though. You know, you've been through like drugs and alcohol and, you know, just that. And you, like you're, you're, you've been sober for a while. So that, like, that's a big difference how you've been, um, like working with that and trying to, um, just with that. You've, you've, you know, you're, you're, you're going through that. That's a lot to go through with everything changing in the world and just trying to still be, you know, irrelevant and not relevant, but like, you know, politically correct and all that other kind of stuff, right? The true indicator has been that, you know, I probably am more at peace of who I am. I'm no longer trying to fight to fit in the mold of whatever it is, you know. I don't, I'm not fighting to want to prove that I'm black. Yeah. I'm not fighting wanting to prove that I'm white. I mean, I'm just comfortable just being neural today than I ever have been. And um, I think that was, I think for a long time I was kind of caught in between those both worlds trying to fit in. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, I know. Our, our window was really small. The light skin was really small. <laughs> yeah, being light skin, being in. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was, I was never really in. That's no. the whole point. Because, no? No, because, I mean, I, you know, you either was, you were either not, of that or yeah. you weren't enough of that right so yeah. I'm, you're not either 100 percent black so i was always there you know and you were never 100 percent white so 
and and so in my world you know having been someone that's lived in multiple places and lived you know and have done a lot of things and have been up and down at you know financially that i've had different routes in this world to be seen as by people and for a long time i just didn't i just just was just human but i think i was always still uncomfortable yeah but today you know i don't really worry too much about the whole race thing anymore yeah that's good you know? So, so how long have you been like sober? Sober, twenty-four years. This week, January the fifth, nineteen ninety-nine, was the sobriety date. Okay. Yeah. How's that been going? I think the drugs and alcohol part has been removed. You know, um, in um, the program of AA, they say you know alcohol is but the symptom. You know, I think there's so much more to why um, that became such a prevalent part of my life. And uh, I think some of it is hereditary, right? I think some of it was because I can I can go back four generations in front of me that of drug and alcohol users. So I, I believe that's part of it. Um, and I think, you know, um, it's the behavior part. It's that symptom that you try to fill the hole of the pain that you're in. And then once you decide you no longer want to do drugs and alcohol, it's how do I fill that pain and make up and help that small child become healed? And, you know, it's a, there's a lot of work. And, and then there's just a constant unraveling of, you know, who you are and how you can be better and what makes things work and what doesn't make them work. And, you know, um, relationship stuff you know that you go through and trying to navigate that part of the world at the same time so you know um but yeah 24 years of not drinking and and are using a drug has been and that's worked pretty well for me on that part of it but the behavioral part of it and the th some of the things that i still i had believed in and chased never got removed just because I stopped doing drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So how did you stop doing drugs and alcohol? Like what helped you? Going to federal prison. Well, that is that yeah. Way. Yeah. Waking up one morning in federal prison and then having um, a program that they offered that would get me out sooner and then taking a hold of that program, never thinking I was going to stay sober or stuff, and then coming home and going to um AA and then from AA meeting someone who was willing to work with me and and offer me some solution to that problem and then that became a solution to okay I won't do that anymore but not having a hundred percent worked on some of the other stuff that I suffer from okay you know so that part's been kind of the easy part to be honest with you the not drew and drugs and alcohol have been kind of easy for me Okay. Yeah, because I always I still go to meetings, and I still participate in that part, but the. I think the uh, criminal part of my life wasn't removed, and it took a long time for that part to be removed, and it took actually going back to prison again, for that to actually finally be removed again. You know, so now it's. Um, the chase of money isn't as great. Yeah. You know, it's not as great. Not as great, but it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. I hear you. You know.
Yeah, it's different. Um, yeah, so now that you're out, you're going to stay out. And yes. then um, you're not going to do drugs anymore. You're starting businesses here <laughs> and there. Yep. So how's that going? Like, how's that, the transition to... Well, the interesting to illegal the, from illegal to illegal and just trying the, to stay the, straight. The interesting part is I've always done legal businesses. Mm-hmm. It's just with inside those legal businesses that um, something popped up and I would, I would you know, forsake the legal side to try doing something or shortcut faster, right? Um, but this last, you know, I started doing. I was doing one thing what really I really enjoyed doing, which was selling the artificial turf. And then, you know, that just opened the door to some other things. And, and for a moment there, was looking at the cryptocurrency. And, and then that whole thing collapsed about the time I started to do that. And then I got brought into doing what they call precious metals, gold and silver. And that's something that just started doing that. And that seems to be, like, will be my last hurrah in business. You know, this will be the last thing I probably end up doing. And then uh, right off into the sunset. Okay. You know, whatever that's going to be. All right. You know. So what are you doing now? What is it? Selling precious metals to mainly uh, people's 401 in their IRA, getting them to transfer their retirement funds into precious metals to hedge against the recession that's coming on board and how to keep themselves safe, you know, from what's getting ready to happen. Uh, you know, a lot of them have fear that uh, the government has a digital currency that they're getting ready to start doing. They have a digital currency that they've already started to put in place. So um, just, you know, trying to educate them a little bit on that and uh, using that platform to, you know, um, I guess protect my daughter at the end, give her something to look back on and for my you know, my significant other for her and I to at least like for the last part of our life, um, the next 20 years together, like trying to enjoy it a little bit. That sounds fun. Sounds great now. Yeah. You know, um, I hope, every, hope everything goes great for you and you keep, yeah, you keep on I mean, that path. Well, mainly it's, um, yeah. And then at the end of the day, get back a little bit and then, uh, you know, then it's over. The bus ride comes to a stop. You know, yep. not much more you can really do about it. Well, that sounds like, let's end it there, because that's it. Well, the bus the bus ride hasn't came to a stop, but thanks it's a lot, It's always man. good hanging out with my cousins. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, we'll get you back again. We'll talk some more, and then um, I'm going to get your other brother in. All right. I want to get both. I want to get Arlen and uh, Melroy together. Well, That'd not together, but yeah. I'd love to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. We talk a lot, you know. Yeah. See about his problems, and hopefully I can help him out to, you know, just... Oh, someone should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's he's a, he's a handful. He definitely is. But he yes, is. But I think we all are in our own way or not. Yes, we are. Yeah. We are. All right, cool. All right, man. Thanks a lot. And twenty four seven. Thanks a lot, everybody, for listening. It's like and subscribe, Melroy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye.